Warning, the following episode contains a description of a suspected sexual assault during prisoner torture and a brief description of suicide. Timestamps are included in our show notes if you would like to skip these discussions. Please stay safe and thank you. Welcome to Macintosh and Mod Haven't Seen What, the podcast where we make each other watch movies we should have already seen. I'm Diana. And I'm David. And today we watched Lawrence of Arabia. The story of T.E. Lawrence, the English officer who successfully united and led the diverse, often warring Arab tribes during World War I in order to fight the Ottoman Empire. Mm-hmm. Very cool. This is the most epic film I think we will ever watch for this podcast. Really? Okay. Longer than Gone with the Wind. That's a by a minute. minute. Like, this movie, <laughs> mm-hmm. they say the word epic, and you don't always understand what that means. Mm-hmm. And then you watch Lawrence of Arabia, the film by which all other epics are judged. Oh, yeah. What a movie. Mm-hmm. I mean, does it hold up? Not particularly well, especially the brown face. It's real bad. Yeah, don't love it. Don't love it. It's 1960s Hollywood. I understand why it happens because they just it should It should have never happened. We understand the context of when it happened. Yes. Yeah. And, and frustratingly, because it was only that Hollywood thought they couldn't market stars that weren't already in Hollywood films. Yeah, it's just bullshit. <laughs> it's still bullshit today. Like, it is. It's just bullshit. And speaking of bullshit, this whole story that we watched on screen, mm-hmm. kind of bullshit. Really? Okay, cool. But I don't care. <laughs> There's something really fascinating. You know, we watched it in two parts because it's it's nearly four hours long. Mm-hmm. It's one of the longest movies that's considered like a classic staple of cinema. Sure. Any movie that goes longer past this gets into that sort of specialty area. (laughs) Yeah. And yet, the whole time, we would look up and be like, we were already an hour in? Like, it moves. It moves really well. You could probably cut an hour just from walking in the the desert type scene. Oh, but see, that's some of my favorite parts of the movie. No, those are fucking beautiful. Beautiful. However... Most of those sequences do nothing other than to show the vastness of this region, which is important, but we don't need an hour of it. Probably not, but yet I they don't. Are, they are beautiful. They are beautiful. This is a movie that it's the 60th anniversary, for one thing. Oh, okay. Yeah, that makes sense. And if they do some sort of new restoration and put it on in screenings, I would look for it. Because this is a film that I would love to see on a giant screen. Yeah. You mentioned Gone with the Wind. And I actually went to a screening with my mom of that when they re- they finally remastered it. They put it in the theater. And that was really fun. I, yeah. I think I would be interested to see this in in the theater. And only because of the vastness sure. of the shots being created here. Yeah. And the fact that like every blockbuster film... Because this was before the concept of the blockbuster. Sure. Every blockbuster film stole from this. Mm-hmm. Every single one of them. Not in a patronizing way, not in a super blatant way. Although, I guarantee you, John Williams used this score as a template for a lot of his Star Wars, Indiana Jones, all of that. 
Yeah, well, so did George Lucas and Steven Spielberg. So. Well, yes, we'll we'll get there. But it's such a touch point for a generation of directors. Sure. As it should be. Who wanted to make their new version of the historical epic mm-hmm. by taking it out of history. And there's oh. so many shots and ways of filming. This is this is one of those weird bridges from old Hollywood to new Hollywood in some ways. Okay. And it's it's because it's coming from a singular director. Yeah. It was very much an auteur of his day. And through a very lengthy process and come hell or high water was going to make his movie. The episode for this movie is going to be as epic as the film itself, I think. All right. Because it was an odyssey. This is not one of those long movies where it's like everybody had a really great time and it was so fascinating to do. It's like, oh, this was an adventure in all of those senses of the word. Uh, it is number seven on AFI's list of greatest movies of all time. Okay. It is probably number one in historical epics by most accounts. It's on the top of some of the, one of the greatest British films of all time, obviously. Because this is very much a British production, not mm-hmm. an American production. The budget for this film was $15 million. Okay. That equates to roughly $147 million in today's money. However, at one point, a gentleman named Steven Spielberg went through all of the different locations and items that were used for shooting and tallied up the costs he thought it would take. And mm-hmm. he estimated it would come in at around $285 million. See, that number does sound better. For this scale, because yes. I because I'm going to put this on par with in terms of scale with Titanic. Yes, it's coming in at the Titanic level just before the advent of the much higher costs with CGI. Yes. Okay. Before yeah. we got the, you know, the three or five hundred million dollar movies that make one point five billion. And that was like the regular, the norm in, in mm-hmm. all of our stuff. Okay. So inflation does not account for how vast and and all of the different things that were involved in this film because i will tell you very little of this is hollywood magic quote unquote yes they were fucking doing it for real love it love it diana loves the practical effect it grossed 70 million dollars which is roughly 688 million again inflation doesn't probably doesn't tell the whole tale and doesn't tell the tale of rescreenings and other stuff like that I'd be willing to bet that this movie over the course of its lifetime has made about a billion dollars. Oh, easy. Because it's so it's so singular. Mm-hmm. It is the only movie that is like it. There are so many historical movies. There's lots of historical movies set in the desert. There is none that is like this. Correct. With this kind of character arc and storytelling and in-depth politics mixed in with all of it, it's... There, there's no movie like it. Wouldn't say it's perfect, but it is. It stands apart. <laughs> mm-hmm. This is, of course, Mr. Spielberg's favorite film. No duh. Shocking. Lawrence Kasdan and Joel Silver have both said it's their favorite film, and both David Fincher and Chris Nolan have listed it as huge inspirations. Those are all very different kinds of directors. Yeah. But all of it makes a lot of sense. It's, it's all about. The man who created this, and especially our director here, right? Mm -hmm. Detail. 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 Ruthless devotion to detail. 
With this film, yes. I wouldn't say that Spielberg's like ruthless with detail. He does like details, but he's not no he's not the way Nolan is. And Fincher is as well. Oh, Fincher is on a different level, but his has more to do with the shot as opposed to the details within like the film. Nolan is all about the details within the film. And then Spielberg is all about sweeping shots. Spielberg is about big shots, but he I mean we talk about how he also tried to put as much into the shot as he could, mm-hmm. especially in more intimate moments, because Spielberg's very good with with intimate moments as well. He just does it a little differently. Mm. The film itself took longer to make than the actual time it took for the real life T.E. Lawrence to move from lieutenant to colonel and watch the Arab tribes unite. <laughs> That's funny. That gives you any sense of how much was put into this fucking movie. (laughs) The actual history went shorter than them making the fucking movie. I'm gonna say okay with that. Lawrence had resisted film versions of the story as early as 1926 when a filmmaker named Rex Ingram approached him. He had written his autobiography called Seven Pillars of Wisdom, and many had come to him to try to talk talk him into making it into a film Hmm. another version would have been directed by our last director lewis milestone Hmm. and would have starred the 1930s movie star leslie howard who also knowing leslie howard's work would have been brilliant would have been great over the years stars like dirk bogard Lawrence olivier carrie grant burgess meredith and alan ladd were all considered as potential leads oh interesting and Dirk Bogard stated that at one point they made a little club for all the mm-hmm. actors considered for Lawrence and said, quote, we even designed a tie, dark background with motif of a burnous and camel, unquote. <laughs> but it was after the success of past war film Bridge on the River Kwai mm-hmm. that producer Sam Spiegel and director David Lean wanted to work together on another giant epic. I like it. They considered a film on the life of Gandhi. which we did talk about during Gandhi, that David Lean was our early who could have been better. However, Richard Attenborough would come along some 20 years later, finally accomplishing that feat. So instead, they decided to move on to Lawrence's story. Fun note, this is the greatest failure of the Bechdel test of all time. Oh, yeah. It is quite possibly the longest film ever made with no dialogue spoken by a woman. There are no women with speaking roles in this film. Not good. Not great. There are women in the film. Yeah, like you started, you said mentioned Bechdel, and I was like, are there even any women in the film? <laughs> there are. We have the the women of the of the tribes as they go off chanting them on, and then we have one moment where the the Turks have killed a bunch of people, and we see some women in the foreground of that shot. That's it. Mm-hmm. And again, for this story, I get it. Sure, <laughs> I do. But it is very funny. However, there, there, there's a historical and, and directorial reason why I think women aren't featured, specifically around mm-hmm. our lead character. The movie spent two years in pre-production before 14 months of shooting in Jordan, Spain, and Morocco. Yes, they shot almost all of this on some sort of location. It went so long that producer Sam Spiegel insisted on a two-month break from filming in the Middle East, where he finally got the production to move over to Europe where it was cheaper. Hmm. So Spain filled in for a lot of desert scenes that they filmed later on because they had some, because of the the ties to North Africa, they've got some landscape that works similarly. Okay. 
the cast during that two-month break took on other film projects because this was going so long. <laughs> oh, okay. This took a year and two months to get done. It's not full Metal Jacket level bad, but it's long. Yeah. The two-month break might have also been because screenwriter Robert Bolt was arrested for a demonstration for nuclear disarmament, and he only got released when Sam Spiegel persuaded him to sign an agreement of good behavior. Okay. <laughs> We're just scratching the surface of how bonkers this movie was. David Lean, for his part, refused to go home during the break as he looked at the horizon for one last shot of the desert panorama with camels. He grumbled, Bloody well match that somewhere else in the world. <laughs> I mean, fair. Big mad. Big mad that they moved him away. Sure. At one point when things were moving too slowly, Sam Spiegel had legendary director William Wyler visit the set. He had done Ben-Hur back in 1957. Mm. And Wyler tried to stress the need for David Lean to use second units. Hmm. Like, hey, you can keep the film going by having other people work and direct. Lean, being an incredibly petulant asshole perfectionist, because he was, mm -hmm. refused to relinquish control to anyone. And as we talk more about David Lean, what you're going to figure out is that he may have been the prototype for Mr. Stanley Kubrick. Because David Lean makes gorgeous movies that mm -hmm. are very good. Sounds like he was kind of a dick. Yeah, that tracks just with everything. <laughs> However, the, his producer was also pretty colorful. Because Sam Spiegel pulled a technique that he used quite often in his mm -hmm. career by faking heart attacks whenever he felt like he needed to course correct production. I mean, okay, Billy Wilder asked people to uh, pretend to be sick so that he could finish writing. Fair. So I'm going to give him a pass on that. It's not great. Not great. At one point, Spiegel flew to set in a Red Cross helicopter strapped to a stretcher. He was wheeled over to director David Lean and said, Don't worry about anything, David. Not the budget, not the schedule, not my health. The picture, the picture is all that counts. And then they had him fly back off set. That's just such a waste of money. <laughs> <laughs> like, why? It's a miracle this movie got finished. Yes, yes it is. And then it's also fucking brilliant. It's very good. Eventually, their relationship reached the breaking point. Spiegel completely abandoned set and then just complained constantly about the costs and thinking they had bad footage from dailies. Mm -hmm. But David Lean got revenge at one point by sneaking a shot of himself flipping off Spiegel in full 70 millimeter glory in the dailies that, that Spiegel received. Like this. To his credit, David Lean might have been a perfectionist, might have been a dick, but he only missed one day of filming. Oh, okay. So he was there the entire time. And apparently he also saw zero dailies while filming. Oh, okay. The British advisor for the film, a man named Sir Anthony Nutting, served as England's Minister of State for Foreign Affairs during the Suez Crisis in 1956. Mm -hmm. So they had him lean on all of the different leaders in the Arab world to help get the movie made. Okay. He worked with King Hussein of Jordan on the premise that it would boost tourism and bring in money to a country then very desperate for cash. And that was pretty common in the Middle East in the 60s. You had a bunch of, of leaders who hadn't quite figured out that they had oil. Mm -hmm. And so they were starting up and, and really trying to like bolster their countries after the events that we see here. <laughs> and they needed cash in order to do it. 
but they couldn't get it from anybody. Okay. The other tie was that King Hussein's great-grandfather, Sharif of Mecca, was one of the figures that launched the Arab Revolt with Lawrence in 1916. Hmm. Nutting also negotiated directly with Bedouin tribesmen who wanted a million pounds for their services in the film. Wow. Uh, Nutting asked how they could want so much, and then he found out that the Bedouins had learned something from their representative, Sharif Nasser, that producer Sam Spiegel had taken out a secret one million pound loan from the Arab bank to hedge his bets on the movie. (laughs) The bank director was Sharif Nasser's uncle. Ah, (laughs) that's pretty funny. So what did Sam Spiegel do? What he always did, he faked a heart attack, threatening the future of the production and bluffing the Bedouin into lowering their price. I mean, that's horrible and hilarious at the same time. <laughs> I, yeah, fake a t- heart attack. I. <laughs> you know, you're so, just tempted fate at that point. It's so fucking ridiculous. That is ridiculous. And they say women are overly emotional. This is so fucking ridiculous. Oh, <laughs> uh, it's it's I very kinda, good. Times. I kind of love it. I kind of love it. King Hussein of Jordan offered an entire brigade of the Arab Legion to perform as extras, making many of the soldiers in the film portrayed by actual soldiers. Mm-hmm. It's pretty cool. Hussein's blessing allowed Nutting to negotiate their fee down. That also helped Nutting with the Jordanians. And Hussein visited set frequently and fell in love with British secretary Antoinette Gardner, whom he married in 1962. Mm-hmm. So somebody they met on the movie then became the wife of the king. Their son, Abdullah II, took the throne in 1999, or Abdullah II. On the other hand, soldiers from the Moroccan army were employed as extras without pay. They were obviously very resentful of their government negotiating this deal, and during off hours, they would take pot shots at cast and crew, including director David Lean. Jeez. And some of the soldiers deserted the army between takes, never to return. This movie just about caused international incidents. Multiple international incidents. And yet, here we are talking about it to this day, right? Right? Mm -hmm. Yep. Okay, let's get into it. Let's talk about our writing. Guess who's our writer? We just talked about him a couple of movies ago. It's Robert Bolt, who wrote A Man for All Seasons. Oh, okay. He also did the screenplay. However, another gentleman named Michael Wilson worked on the film for quite some time, and he was originally uncredited because of Hollywood blacklisting. Mm -hmm. But in 1978, he got his credits restored through the Writers Guild. Okay. So before this, Wilson wrote Border Patrol, 40 Thieves, It's a Wonderful Life as a contributor, A Place in the Sun, The Court Martial of Billy Mitchell, and The Bridge on the River Kwai. After this, he wrote The Sandpiper, Planet of the Apes, and Che. Interesting. What do we think of the writing of this movie? Well, to find out that none of it's true knocks it down for sure. Because really? The, a little bit, yeah. Because the dialogue and it it just drags. Like it's the movie itself overall moves very well, but I feel like the dialogue doesn't work with it. Huh. See, I find the opposite. I mean, uh, let me be clear too. We're going to get there with the history. Part of the reason that it's not true is mm-hmm. because Lawrence's life is pretty much unclear from everybody's perspective. Mm -hmm. 
And it's because there are wildly radical views. He's an incredibly polarizing figure to historians. And so Bolt's doing the same thing he did with A Man for All Seasons, Mm -hmm. which is that he's taking this one guy and focusing the lens completely through him. Weirdly, though, because of the way they portray Lawrence, and that's really the subject of the ahistorical aspects here, is Mm -hmm. Lawrence's supposed sadism his penchant for being bloodthirsty. I think that's the complicating thing here. Like for me, I love the writing because it does what a man for all seasons doesn't do, which is it gives us an actual tragic hero. Mm -hmm. A man who is so consumed by his idea of making a difference that he misses all of the pain and misery he's causing. Okay. I mean, it drags because... There's so much to cover, I think. But I don't I I don't feel like there the dialogue's clunky. I just feel like there are moments where the dialogue is unnecessary or we're we're running long on the theme, and then there are moments where the dialogue just punches you in the gut. The other side is I could convince myself of your point that it's clunky, and the fact that makes it interesting and unique is the actors. Mm-hmm. Because I think the acting is so stellar that it might make a kind of subpar, make some subpar dialogue really sing. Because God is our acting incredible. Yes. So, I don't know. It That is definitely a mixed bag. I do think that regardless of the, the veracity of the story, mm-hmm. to me, it takes you on the actual hero's journey. And that can, that is such a trope that can be played out so much. But this is one of the movies that does it so, so well mm-hmm. by showing you a man who has some preternatural wisdom beyond just the normal scope of things. There is something about him that is beyond what a normal person can do. Yeah. And yet it comes at a cost. And that's the story of the movie. That's fascinating to me. That's mm-hmm. interesting to me. And I think that's what they absolutely get right what I wished he had gotten right with A Man for All Seasons. I, I, I think you're probably right that it's the some of the other elements that take what's a pretty decent script with some, with some flaws and turns it into a really great movie. Mm-hmm. That, that is probably true. Well, Michael Wilson was the original writer of the movie. Okay. But as location shooting was about to begin... David Lean up and decided he didn't like the treatment and demanded they find another writer. Mm. Wilson had worked on the film for almost a year before he was just let go. This movie was two years in pre-production. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. So at some point, David Lean saw A Man for All Seasons in London. Mm -hmm. And he knew he had his writer. That's cool. So he brings in Robert Bolt and Bolt was initially asked only to help write dialogue. But he refused, saying the project would be too big in scope just to do that. I I couldn't do it unless I'm going to do a full rewrite. So Sam Spiegel said, fine, I will give you a ton of money to do a rewrite, but you have to do it in seven weeks because we're about to start. We cannot delay production any further. That's hilarious. So Bolt took it on. And instead of using any other books, because there were tons and tons of biographies about Lawrence, everybody had a take. He simply said, Forget it all. I'm just using his autobiography. And a lot of the reasoning was 
there were there were all these different writings about him, but they were all contradictory. Mm-hmm. One would say, you know, he's this hero. The other one would say he's a complete villain. And so Bolt went, okay, forget it. The only one that we can rely on and the only one that's really telling a good story is his autobiography. So we're just going to use that. That's fair. I mean, I, yeah, if you're going to tell the story and you just want to tell like an an entertaining story, you've just got to pick a source and go with it. Especially like if all the history is pointing in the same direction, absolutely. You can supplement. Sure. Pick the one that gives you the best dramatic narrative, but then you can bring in the other details. But when they're all arguing with each other. Yeah, you you can't. Just go with the primary source. (laughs) Yeah. Now, again, a lot of historians, because of the contradictory stuff, will say, well, his autobiography is bullshit. Okay. So then you're just like, "Ah, again, Lawrence is such a complicated figure for so many people. But part of this, too, we can't really get into this until we get all the way into the history. But part of Mm -hmm. this, too, I think, is that Bolt is taking license with certain aspects of history Mm -hmm. in the service of propping up Lawrence. Okay. And in doing so, he completely cuts down the importance of the other characters in this story. Mm. Because this isn't really a story just about Lawrence. Remarkable a person as he was. Mm -hmm. It's about the Arab revolt. (laughs) That would honestly require like a full-on miniseries. Or several seasons of a television show, because it's so complicated. <laughs> There's so many moving parts to that story. And they do a decent job of trying to give you enough to roll with, but it's it's so much bigger than even this film could do. Bolt worked closely with Anthony Nutting, who we talked about, who is the, the advisor. And Nutting was also working on a separate biography of Lawrence on his own while helping on the film. While researching then, he was convinced that Lawrence had left something out of his final edition of Seven Pillars of Wisdom, specifically regarding his capture and mistreatment by the Turkish police. Mm. In a rare 1922 edition of the manuscript and a letter to George Bernard Shaw's wife, Lawrence strongly suggested that the Turkish Bey had raped Lawrence during his torture. Mm. They then use that to hint at it in the film. So, of course, they would never show it, but they show him standing at the door with his shirt open. Um, Per Lawrence and per some of the study, it seems very likely. In his actual autobiography that did get published, he doesn't mention that, but he does mention that he was tortured, abused, and that led to him seeking revenge of sorts. Half of historians disagree with this. They say Lawrence was never around the city of Dura at that point Mm -hmm. and wouldn't have encountered the Turks. No one knows. (laughs) It's such a a weird thing. I think at the end of the day, the writing, they knew they were going to tell a story about this one guy Mm -hmm. because that's the dramatic story in the arc that we have here. And they knew that to do that, they wanted the best story available and the best story available was his autobiography. Whether or not that's the best source, nobody can really agree. And that leads us into our history. Jeez. <laughs> so, again, we have this big paradox. Mm-hmm. Because not even Lawrence himself in his actions or some of his, or, or some of his different times seem to agree on what the fuck happened here. And there's a lot going on that I think there's harm done to the history unintentionally. Everything that I can see is... is the movie's really good. The movie tells this really great tragic character arc. It also does a complete disservice to a lot of the other people, specifically the Arab leaders that were involved in this revolt. 
So we'll start with the first part. The timeline and events of the movie have been radically changed. Everything in the story is like mismatched and moved all over where it actually happened in history. Okay. Most of the characters are based on real figures. And in fact, they're mostly amalgamates of several different people in one character, which that makes a lot of sense. You got to you, you want to bring different elements, but you don't want five characters to give you the same arc. Yeah. So Sharif Ali is a combination platter of several different Arab leaders, particularly Sharif Nasir, cousin of Faisal, who led all the forces in Aqaba. Lawrence didn't serve with one single Arab leader throughout the war. Hmm. So in order to tell the plot, they needed to have somebody in in the center at the focus. Hmm. And that's where we get Omar Sharif's character, Sharif Ali. The character was named after Sharif Ali ibn Hussein, who played his own part in the revolt and was mentioned in Lawrence's autobiography. And again, as we mentioned, was the relative of King Hussein of Jordan. Jackson Bentley, the journalist, is based on the real-life journalist Lowell Thomas from the U.S., whose writings brought Lawrence to public attention. The difference is that Thomas was actually much, much younger, and he only spent a few days or weeks with Lawrence. He wasn't embedded with him on travels. Hmm. Thomas only ever reported on Lawrence after World War I. He held him in very high regard. He wasn't cynical about him at all. Hmm. Um, He thought he was this really interesting, fascinating man. In the original script that Michael Wilson wrote, Bentley was the narrator of the script. But Bolt decided that, no, we can't have a narrator for this movie. <laughs> I think that was a good choice. I, I think that's fair. It, it, we're doing so much visual storytelling, mm-hmm. a narrator would ruin it. Mr. Dryden, uh, the political figure at the table, was based on a lot of figures, including Sir Ronald Storrs, the head of the Arab Bureau, and later the governor of Palestine. He was the man responsible for introducing Lawrence to King Faisal. He was also based on several of Lawrence's friends and acquaintances who were political liaisons to the Arabs and were also archaeologists who brought the educated Lawrence into that arena. Mm -hmm. But he's an allegory. And all of these guys, because they're amalgamates, they're not there to be the direct historical figures. They're there to be the representative of a certain thing. Sure. So Dryden is the balance between the military and the politicians. Colonel Brighton is the position of all the officers who saw Lawrence as this incredibly talented leader, but hated the fact that he was sort of assimilating within the Arabs. Mm -hmm. And, you know, they're all incredibly racist. (laughs) Yep. Then there's the timelines, which Lawrence's meeting of the Arab Council and the Battle of Aqaba are incredibly dramatized. Aqaba wasn't a sneak attack. In fact, the fighting occurred about 50 miles inland, and it was done with conventional soldiers. They had a freestanding army that went and fought the Turkish fighters, and then they came in after and just seized the fort. They marched in unopposed, partially because there were British warships just relentlessly shelling Aqaba. Mm-hmm. So it wasn't nearly the sort of incredible David versus Goliath victory that we get in the movie. It really boils down to they, they are separating history to focus on Lawrence. Hmm. That's the whole plan with the storytelling. And, you know, it, it goes to the fact that, you know, this wasn't a, a force of Bedouin guerrillas. It was really an actual conventional army recruited from a bunch of different perspectives. They actually, the regular Arab army recruited from Ottoman Arab prisoners of war. So if they were actually Arabic and they were just conscripted in, they were said, hey, do you want to come fight for our side so we can have freedom? Yeah. 
And it was very interesting because there are pictures. They uh, were British uniforms with the Arab kafia, the head wraps, and fought conventional battles for that army. Hmm. Okay. The, the history is weak there. Then there's Lawrence, and this is where it gets a little bit more complicated. <laughs> First of all, the real Lawrence was not this sort of slender six foot two Adonis mm-hmm. that we get from Peter O'Toole. Yeah. Lawrence was five foot five and a very just normal British dude. You see pictures of him and there's some similarities to Peter O'Toole. Mm-hmm. There are, but he was just kind of a dude. Okay. Which I think makes him even more fascinating <laughs> because he did all this without being just some like godlike figure. The biggest problem is this framing as the tragic hero, mm-hmm. blinded by his own vengeance. Because the actual Lawrence, it's very murky as to whether or not he actually enjoyed attention from everyone. Mm-hmm. He definitely wanted to tell his story, partially because he still wanted the Arabs to have their independence. Mm-hmm. But later on in his life, after he finished the war, he used a number of assumed names. He didn't mm-hmm. go by T.E. Lawrence because he almost, it very much seems like he was trying to hide from all the notoriety that he got. Lowell Thomas said that he could only get pictures of Lawrence by tricking him. Lawrence was incredibly camera shy. In fact, the only time he ever posed was for a later stage show that Lowell Thomas presented in the U.S. Hmm. And Thomas stated that Lawrence, quote, had a genius for backing into the limelight, unquote. Huh. That it was just his pure resolve and will, and that, again, that, that sort of almost beyond human level of just like, I'm going to do this, goddammit, mm-hmm. that got him such attention. He never wanted it, but it was just his sheer charisma and force of will that brought it to him. Mm-hmm. So the primary sources around him are like, he didn't care that much. <laughs> it wasn't about glory for him. Except that a lot of historians disagree and say that his personal writing shows all of this egotism. <laughs> Love it. Harms in the air. <laughs> One of the other big things is that his sexual orientation is very hotly debated in circles. David Lean himself very clearly cited with some of the studies like the 1955 biographical inquiry from Richard Aldington, who claimed Lawrence was a, quote, pathological liar and exhibitionist, and also stated that he was a homosexual. Mm. The play Ross that came out that was also at some point going to be an adaptation, which is Lawrence's story. Ross was a pseudonym that he used. Mm-hmm. Spiegel sued them to force them out of it because Lawrence was such a big deal. Mm-hmm. It f- also focused on Lawrence's homosexuality, but it portrayed him as the opposite. It portrayed him as, quote, physically and spiritually recluse. Hmm. The focus on Dera, which we get with the torture and this sort of psychosexual issues that he's got from that, the mistaking of characters for accurate historical figures. The film is giving a lot of credence to that theory, whereas it's very unclear whether that's true. Mm -hmm. And while the primary source is Seven Pillars, it's a really mixed bag. Most historians agree that no matter what, the film's popularity did more to influence public perception than anything that's on the historical record. Okay. And so while he was a huge figure, there's no way to really know. And the biggest problem by far is the portrayal of other historical figures in the film, specifically General Allenby. Okay. In the film, he's shown to be very superior to Lawrence, very cold, manipulative, you know, just 
using Lawrence for whatever aims the British army wants. Mm-hmm. They were much closer than that. Okay. Allenby did manipulate him. That's that's just facts on paper. Mm-hmm. But they were still very much friends. Lawrence referred to him as, quote, physically large and confident and morally so great that the comprehension of our littleness came slow to him, unquote. Their friendship outlasted the war. Lawrence was incredibly delighted when Allenby came out publicly and supported the accuracy of his autobiography. Mm -hmm. And Allenby's family was specifically upset by the portrayal of him coldly allowing Damascus to fall into chaos when the Arab Council collapsed. They were Mm -hmm. like, he never fucking did this. (laughs) He was an army general, but he wasn't just this conniving cold man. And the worst is Auda Abu Tayy. Now, in the movie, he's very fun. Mm-hmm. This is our Anthony Quinn character. Okay. But they portray him as focused solely on loot and money. It was the exact opposite. Mm. Out his way into the revolt was riches, for sure. That was why he initially got in. But very quickly, he was one of the most loyal supporters of Arab independence, particularly after the capture of Aqaba. Mm-hmm. Which, again, in the film, that directly contravenes real history. Because in the film, all they say is, you know, well, where's my money? There's no gold. Yeah. No. At that point, Auda was like, I'm all in. Let's get our independence. We deserve this. In fact, Auda would pocket Turkish bribes to try to get stuff out of him and then just give it back to the revolt and remained loyal. Hmm. He went so far that his false teeth were Turkish made, so he had them knocked out. Really? That's how devoted he was. He was one of the principal architects of the revolutionary expedition, along with Lawrence and Faisal. All right, that's cool. He's a much cooler figure and much less, like, cynical than they give him credit in this movie. Mm -hmm. And finally, Faisal gets a little bit of short shrift here. He wasn't middle-aged at all. He was in his early 30s during this period of time. And he and Lawrence had a lot of mutual respect. They worked really well together. There wasn't this tension between them that's shown in the film. Mm -hmm. It was really far more of the, you go out and do the battle, and I will go and do the politics. (laughs) And they had that sort of partnership there. Almost everyone who actually knew Lawrence and other historical figures were horrified by this movie. Really? And it's really specifically... The portrayal of him becoming so mad and sadistic with glory. That Mm. part they could not abide by. Basil Liddell Hart, one of Lawrence's biographers, wrote to warn his many friends that they would be shocked by his portrayal in this way. Lady Allenby, Edmund Allenby's window, wrote the London Times, quote, Is there any way in which a film company can be stopped from portraying a character so inaccurately as that of the late Field Marshal Allenby in Lawrence of Arabia? What can one do? What is the remedy? They filed a formal complaint to Columbia Pictures. The descendants of Audu Abu Tayy and Sharif Nassar, who was the basis for Sharif Ali, went yeah. further and sued Columbia Pictures over the portrayal. Wow. It went on for 10 years before being dropped. And finally, Lawrence's own brother, S.A. Lawrence, was horrified at the liberties taken. He called it, quote, an unholy marriage between a Western and a psychological horror, unquote. Mm. He publicly took all of the proceeds taken from the rights to the book that he sold to Columbia and donated it to charity and famously said while campaigning, denouncing the film, quote, I should not have recognized my own brother, quote. Hmm. 
the biggest part of this that they all have a problem with is that the characters themselves are drawn up so polarly opposite to what who the man really was. Sure. But that being said, mm-hmm. it tells a really fascinating story. It, I mean, it does. The one thing everybody can agree on is that they it very accurately portrays Lawrence's desire for the Arabs to have their independence. Everybody was like, Lawrence was a true believer in this. He found a love for these people and he found a love for the desert. And he wanted to give these people independence. The other thing is that though there are some historians who really want to defend Lawrence too much, most accounts do confirm that he did participate in the slaughter of retreating Turkish columns who had committed the Tafas massacre. That that slaughter that we see as the sort of final climax of the film mm-hmm. is is very based in history. It did happen. And I wouldn't be shocked. I wouldn't be shocked and I wouldn't be shocked as to his motivation because again, if he was horribly tortured by the Turks, you understand that. Yes. You don't love it, but you understand that being complicated in this man. Mm-hmm. And and especially in a man who up until that point had seen such an interesting purity of motive, mm-hmm. suddenly being confronted with the reality of all of this. Mm-hmm. So at the end of the day, this is not a historical movie. Okay. And it really shouldn't be watched that way. It shouldn't be treated as a historical movie. It should be seen as an epic, as the sort of really artistic piece of historical fiction. Mm-hmm. And in a weird way for me, it succeeds because it ignores that history and says, this man's going to be a full-on Greek tragedy. That, to me, is what makes the movie good. If you tried to complicate it, I don't think you can do it in the same way. You can't mm-hmm. tell this story the way you told it within a condensed period enough to make an actual movie out of it. You've got to blow out the story way bigger. And at that point, it's not a four-hour movie anymore. Yeah. (laughs) I don't think there was any other way to make a Hollywood historical epic without completely changing that part of the story. No, there's there's really not. So it it sucks. It sucks because I'm like, the, the real story is also just as fascinating. But it's like, you got to like read a book to get it. Mm-hmm. You're not going to get it through this picture. The film was banned in numerous Arab countries claiming misrepresentation. Omar Sharif, who was Egyptian, arranged to show the film to Gamal Abdel Nasser, president of Egypt, to show him that the film did quite the opposite. It showed them as gaining their independence. Nasser loved the film and allowed its release in Egypt to get, which became a huge success in Egypt. Mm-hmm. The film did great. And finally, Lawrence's death is something of a controversy in history as well. Mm -hmm. Because many believe that Lawrence was not killed in an accident. He was murdered. Hmm. One of the main witnesses to his death on the motorcycle was an army corporal who testified that at the time, a black van was heading toward Lawrence and then raced down the road after the corporal ran over to check on him. The corporal was then instructed not to mention the van being involved in the accident. And shortly after testifying to that effect that, yeah, the van was there, the corporal committed suicide. Hmm. It's very mysterious. It is. Also, just before his death in 1935, a friend of Lawrence, Henry Williamson, was arranging a meeting between T.E. Lawrence and Adolf Hitler in an effort to try to make peace between England and Germany because Lawrence was so abhorrent of the idea of war in Europe again that he would do anything to try to stop it. Okay. 
And that is the history <laughs> of one Mr. T.E. Lawrence. Now let's talk about our director. Director, okay. Sir David Lean mm-hmm. has appeared on the show before. Before this, he edited 1938's Pygmalion, then directed Major Barbara, in which we serve Blythe Spirit, Brief Encounter, the 1946 Great Expectations, Oliver Twist, Madeline Hobson's Choice, Summertime, and The Bridge on the River Kwai. Mm. After this, he directed some scenes of the greatest story ever told, Dr. Zhivago, Ryan's Daughter, and A Passage to India. He is quite possibly our original auteur in Mm. all those senses of the word. I mean, we talked about several different directors, but like this dude really pushed those boundaries. Mm -hmm. What do we think of David Lean's directing of this film? I mean, it's very excellent. I think you're absolutely right. And the writing of this film is good, not great. The directing makes it amazing. It makes it a masterpiece. Just the shots of the desert alone. Just the Mm -hmm. idea of, okay, we see something off in the distance. And instead of showing something from the distance and then cutting back and forth, which is what we do now all the fucking time, Mm -hmm. he just says, put the camera on the guy a mile away. And keep it there. And then get this that first scene with Sharif Ali where they're staring into the distance and slowly this figure emerges from the desert. Mm-hmm. Who does that? Well, so it reminds me a little bit of the mockumentary style in that sometimes like I've, I've, you know, I listen to a bunch of those podcasts and they talk about how sometimes when you are far away watching somebody that is more intimate than putting the camera in the person's face. Oh, yeah. And it's that vibe. It's that same thing where it's like we're watching something happen. It's. Uh, I also think it's similar to uh, like those Planet Earth documentaries where you're just like, we're just going to set the camera here and we're going to let let things happen. And we don't do that as much now. There are some directors who have made uh, great pains to do like those one shots, which are meant to feel in that way. But this is very beginning of like this style and it's fabulous. Oh, well, it's also so unique because you're doing it in an epic. Mm-hmm. You, you do see it a lot in the 60s and the early 60s, late 50s, especially when you're dealing with like neorealism in Italy mm-hmm. where you're like making kitchen sink dramas and shit. You don't see that in a giant movie because this is shot in 70 millimeters. Mm-hmm. it's beyond big format screen. Like, this is the biggest we have until IMAX. That's yeah. how big and grand this movie is. And yet, he's willing to take those moments. Part of the reason it is three hours and 45 minutes is because he wants to linger on those shots. Mm-hmm. And those are the most amazing storytelling devices in the movie. You know, he doesn't waste a whole lot of time with trying to do a whole bunch of, I don't know, intercutting or setting up of place and time, he just says, I'm going to give it to you. And if you're disoriented, that works. And if you're not and you're fully invested, you are too. Mm -hmm. He just does not give a shit what the audience thinks. He just goes, this is how I'm going to compose this moment. (laughs) And there's, I mean, God, there's so many moments like that. There's the infamous edit of Lawrence being in Cairo, blowing out the match, and suddenly it's the desert mm-hmm. with the sun rising. And you're just like, fucking hell. Literally, no one makes movies like this anymore. No. And no one ever will. 
because why would they? There's no reason to make a movie like this anymore. So it exists in this very specific period of time. But it's also really key, again, why so many of these moments, I mean, I I was thinking about it after, and it's just like the entirety of Tatooine in Star Wars is just this. Mm Mm-hmm. And why wouldn't it be? Why wouldn't Lucas go, well, they did this. Why bother? Why try to make it any better? Because he already perfected everything you could do in the desert. I don't, there, there's something about the way that he was like, this is the landscape and the feeling of the desert. So I'm going to use the camera to get that point across. Mm-hmm. That's all he did. And in just that simple idea... You know, the, the flip side is it was so complex to do it, mm-hmm. but it's not a it's not a complicated idea of what he was trying to do. He's just like, I'm going to give you all of it. And boy, do we get all of it. Mm-hmm. Reportedly, he watched John Ford's Western classic, The Searchers, over and over and over again to get inspiration for this movie, hmm. which is also considered an incredible classic. Everything in the film moves left to right. To signify a journey. In fact, the only time it moves right to left is when Lawrence has to go back for Mm -hmm. the guy lost in the desert. Because the journey's going backwards for a moment. Yeah. Lean demanded the largest format possible in 70 millimeter because he saw the grandeur of Jordan and the deserts. Mm -hmm. To get the shot of Sharif Ali through the mirage, they used a 482 millimeter lens from Panavision known now as the David Lean lens. <laughs> it was made for this shot and this shot alone. It has never been used in another movie. Wow, okay. But to get him coming from the haze of the desert, mm-hmm. they made a fucking camera lens. Love it. All of the night scenes were shot in day for night because they could not adequately light the night scenes in the pitch darkness mm-hmm. of the desert. Which, it looks incredibly good. The way they filtered and shadowed the day for night mm-hmm. is pretty impressive at it's some It's very good. However, this does explain why at night the camels have shadows. Okay, yeah. It's like, oh, oh well, there's not a whole lot you can do about it. We'll just call it, just call it moonlight and we'll move on. At one point, the scene where Lawrence is given his first Arab clothes, it just wasn't working when he, when he put it on. Mm-hmm. And so David Lean took Peter Toole aside and he said, there's something missing, Peter. What do you think a young man would do alone in the desert if he'd just been given these beautiful robes? He then simply gestured to the desert, and O'Toole looked. And then Lean said, there's your theater, Peter. Do what you like. And at that point, O'Toole improvised him, spinning around, looking in the knife, doing all of that business. Mm -hmm. So as much of an asshole as he was, Lean knew how to get it across to actors. Originally, the incredible cut from Lawrence blowing the match to the desert sunrise was just going to be a simple dissolve. It was actually his editor, Anne V. Coates, who suggested a direct cut in the fashion of the French New Wave. Hmm. This is new film finally coming over to influence old Hollywood. Mm-hmm. And this, like I said, that's part of why it's such a bridge point for guys like Spielberg, Lucas, mm-hmm. all of that wave, because it was like, This is a director finally recognizing, hey, maybe those guys experimenting over there have some ideas. Yeah. Lean believed that Lawrence's inability to come to terms with his own homosexuality was one of the key conflicts in the movie. His his relationship with Ali, Lean felt like it was it was almost a love affair. Hmm. 
Hmm. And that has led to a lot of uh, of critical response to the film and, and critical in like the sort of academic sense, mm-hmm. showing that you can read this whole movie as a character unable to deal with his own queerness. There's a way to view this film in that lens. Hmm. It's probably pushing pushing some things, but it's an interesting way to to view the film. Aqaba was recreated in a dry riverbed in southern Spain. They built over 300 buildings mm-hmm. and recreated it almost to detail from 1916. There was a quarter mile seawall that they built over there. And on the hillside behind, they built a half mile square Turkish army camp and parade ground to overlook it. The scene employed 450 horses and 150 camels, and Lean planned to actually film it in Aqaba himself, but this was after the cost overruns and outbreaks of illness finally forced them to move to Europe. That's how big this movie was. Mm-hmm. Spain, and specifically Seville, stood in for a lot of the architecture of Damascus and Cairo because those cities had actually, they wanted to go film there, but they'd become too modernized. Mm-hmm. And Seville, and a lot of Spain had a lot of the old architecture from the Arab cities mm-hmm. because of the time that the Moors had, had taken over Spain. To film the entry of Allenby to Damascus at Seville's Archaeological Museum, they got over 2,000 extras. That whole crazy screaming scene in the street, it's all mm-hmm. real people. Wow. Yeah. Okay. And for one fun stand-in, the Welsh sand dunes of Methermar were also used to fill in for some of the sand dunes in the film. Hmm. So they went to Wales for a little bit. David Lean did not see a royalty check for this film until 1978. Was that because of the lawsuit? I don't think it was the lawsuit. I think it was just he cost them so much fucking money (laughs) that at a certain point, the producers were like, you're not seeing a red cent. Until we actually make a profit over like three or four times, my dude. Right. He cost them a ton. But his attention to detail is is so specific. And like a couple of little things. When they go to Faisal's hut mm-hmm. and they meet for the first time, Brighton stretches his legs out, unlike everybody else in the tent. Because he's just he's been walking. In Arab culture, the exposing of the sole of the shoes is considered a gross insult. Hmm. And since Lawrence being educated in Arab culture, would know this, he doesn't do it. Also, when Lawrence is writing out the promissory note to Auda, he writes from right to left, as one would write in Arabic. Hmm. It's that attention to detail. Because <laughs> again, it doesn't always read per se on screen, but you feel it. You just, you buy into the storytelling because he's thrown all of that in. Mm-hmm. Now... <laughs> After all of the work was completed on filming, including second unit work, which he finally allowed, he only had two months to edit. Wow. Yeah. He made all of this shit and he only had two months to get it ready. The premiere cut that they did was a few minutes longer than he would have liked. And so when Columbia approached him saying, hey, we'd like you to make a few cuts, he was like, great. I, there's a few things here I want to tweak just to get the pacing right. Instead, they demanded he cut 20 minutes from the film so they could get extra showings in and bring in a second audience to the theater. So then whole scenes got cut, which sucks. And then in 1971, they took out another 15 minutes. What? Critics have said that the 1971 cut is nearly incoherent in the second half because they cut between scenes with no explanation of plot. Wow. However... 
1989, the film was completely restored after undergoing several revisions. Mm-hmm. And this is the version that we watched. Okay. Two film conservationists were like, this is a pinnacle of movie making. We need to preserve it. And so they, they got permission from Columbia to say, hey, we want to do a big restoration. We want to put it all back together. And we'd like to, you know, see what else, what else you have out there. Mm-hmm. Thinking maybe they'd get, you know, a few extra cans of footage or whatnot. There were four tons of extra footage delivered to them. Oh my God. That's how much he filmed on this movie. It took nearly a year to sift through all the footage to see what they might want to restore and add. That makes sense. Like, honestly, because when you're doing a restoration, you're trying to see if there's anything new that they cut for time, but that would give more context. That would be a better shot. I mean, just that makes total sense. Like restoration is a different beast than just editing. Oh, absolutely. And this, and I I will also mention, this was all done with Lean's blessing and involvement. I believe Mm -hmm. he was still alive at the time. So he was also helping supervise some of it, making sure it, it stayed true to the, to the original film. But the fact that they had like hundreds of canisters of full reels of film to go through. Now, they, they did this whole restoration, but one of the things they discovered was that the cut footage no longer had a usable soundtrack. Mm-hmm. They didn't have voice. So they brought the surviving members of the cast and some other voice actors for non-surviving members to re-record lines and replace the soundtrack for the cut footage. Mm-hmm. So they, they do all this. Lean complimented Peter O'Toole for all of his effort in recreating some of those lines saying that he thought he did a better job than his acting in the original film. O'Toole responded in kind, quote, After 25 years, I think I have learned enough to play the scene properly, unquote. (laughs) And after redubbing his lines, Peter O'Toole joked, Well, now I know how to read the lines. Wow. (laughs) And with that, we're going to take a brief intermission. Wow. Because there is so much more to cover. Oh, geez. All right. Time to refill that beverage. Ooh, take a break, listen to some music, and then come back. All right. All right, we've had our intermission. We've taken our break. Mm-hmm. We've gotten our popcorn and snacks. I guess you have. Because now it is time to talk about our cast. Mm. And when I say this cast, there are no less than four full-on movie stars in this movie. Mm-hmm. Which is, I mean, it's a four-hour movie. You were going to get some movie stars regardless, right? Mm-hmm. But we start off with a man who wasn't exactly a movie star just yet. Mm-hmm. He sure as shit would be after this movie. Okay. And that is one Peter O'Toole playing Lawrence. And he's a prior guest uh, appearing in our Oscars 82 series. Before this, he was in the films Kidnapped and the Savage Innocence. Mm-hmm. After this, he was in Beckett, Lord Jim, What's New Pussycat, The Sandpiper, How to Steal a Million, The Night of the Generals, Casino Royale in 1967. 
The Lion in Winter, Great Catherine, Goodbye Mr. Chips, The Ruling Class, Man of La Mancha, Foxtrot, Caligula, The Stuntman, My Favorite Year, The Last Emperor, King Ralph, Troy, Venus, Ratatouille, Stardust, and The Tudors on television. Oh, I didn't realize he was in The Tudors. What do we think of Peter O'Toole in this movie? He's great. Acting his ass off. Yeah, he's he's fabulous. The only thing that's drawing back from this performance is that dip-dyed neon yellow hair. We are our hair dye technology needed some more advancement, I think. Or or at least or just a, a more realistic wig. Come on. Well, I again we're we're filming in 70 millimeter. It's like the jump to HD when mm-hmm. all these people that had previously gotten away with just, you know, basic stuff on TV were like, oh, we got to redo your look. We got to. Mm, There's some yeah. work. Yeah, it's not it's not great. Man, he look, he he was given the task from the writing of the script and the Lawrence that was being portrayed by Lean and by the, the writers. Right. Mm-hmm. So. Even though he did a ton of prep, he read a lot, mm-hmm. he, he tried to do a bunch of research, but he really does embody that full tragic hero. And he's capital A acting, but it's not one of these movies where it's distracting from the movie. Because a lot of times it does, right? When you have yeah. acting the movie, you're just rolling your eyes the whole time. But this character is bigger than life. Mm-hmm. And he plays it that way. You know, I love that that bit where David Lean tells him, there's your stage. Look at the desert. Show it off to everyone. Mm-hmm. And it's like that type of thing just unlocks all of this stuff from Peter O'Toole. Mm-hmm. His Irishness mixing in with definitely an effeminate flavor somehow plays so perfectly for this movie. I don't know. He just, it's, Again, he's got to carry a movie for almost four hours, and he does it almost effortlessly. He really does. I think the thing about him that I do really enjoy, and we've seen it with other actors, is that he looks as though he's comfortable doing what appears to be nothing and just letting things linger. It's almost as though he doesn't move and he lets everyone else come to him. And I, I mean that in a good way. Like oh, yeah. he's he's holding back in the scenes and that's it's interesting because then when he breaks down, he's the one who moves. Yeah, and and you see mm-hmm. throughout the movie, slowly but surely, he just is ripping himself apart inside. Mm-hmm. <laughs> just bit by bit, methodically, all of this tension inside of him. Is, is just f- unwinding until he cannot hold it in anymore. <laughs> mm-hmm. And he tries, he tries desperately to get the fuck out of it. Mm-hmm. And they won't let him because he's too valuable to the war effort. <laughs> just that, that whole sequence of, you know, why are, why are you objecting to going back? And it's, you know, well, you killed, killing is hard because I liked it. Mm-hmm. Why not? Well, I, it's, uh, let me see. I killed two people. I mean, two Arabs. One was a boy. That was yesterday. I led him into a quicksand. The other was a man. That was before Akaba, anyway. I had to execute him with my pistol. <laughs> <laughs> 
There was something about it I didn't like. Well, naturally. No, something else. I see. Well, that's all right. Let it be a warning. No, something else. What then? I enjoyed it. Ooh. Yeah. What a terrifying moment and just shows you so much of what the character's going to go through in the second half. Mm-hmm. Because he really does take on this this almost messianic figure in the second half of the film. Mm-hmm. He buys into all of this hype and it rips him apart inside. He's he's fascinating. And those eyes, God, the blue piercing eyes that he has. Mm-hmm. And you're just just ice cold staring at you. He's incredible. Well, David Lean caught a random B-movie called The Day They Robbed the Bank of England that featured a very young Peter O'Toole, and Lean was captured by the incredible good looks of the actor. Mm-hmm. O'Toole stated that he never watched the complete film until two decades after its original release, and by that point, he said he was thoroughly impressed at the acting. When talking about just how long the film took to make on a talk show, he referenced the scene where Lawrence and Allenby talk while walking down a staircase. Part of the scene had to be reshot way later in filming. Per O'Toole, quote, In the final print, when I get to the bottom of the stairs, I'm a year older than I was when I started walking down them. Unquote. (laughs) He only had a day's shoot of his screen test, Mm. and Lean went all out on his screen testing for this movie. I I can't blame him. Mm Mm-hmm. But O'Toole's was actually way more modest than another actor that we'll talk about. O'Toole dyed his hair blonde and shaved his beard, which he had grown while appearing in The Merchant of Venice. Lean saw him in costume and halfway through the screen test stopped everything and said, quote, No, you're shooting another foot of film. The boy is Lawrence, unquote. Mm-hmm. O'Toole's only stipulation was that his wife, Sean Phillips, be flown to location once a month at the expense of the production. Mm-hmm. Considering the filming lasted 14 months, I don't think that was a bad idea on his part. No, no, not at all. Upon being cast, O'Toole immediately started researching. He nearly memorized the entirety of Seven Pillars of Wisdom. Mm -hmm. And he conducted tons of interviews with people close to Lawrence. He actually only had five weeks before leaving for location shoots to get ready. (laughs) So he just like, he speed ran the entirety of studying for the role. The first time Peter O'Toole tried riding on a camel, blood oozed from his jeans. He warned his instructor, quote, this is a very delicate Irish arse. (laughs) (laughs) The only way he could ride comfortably was to add a layer of sponge rubber under the saddle for comfort. This practical fix was actually adopted by the Bedouins acting as extras, and they nicknamed O'Toole Ab al-Isfanja, or Father of the Sponge. Notably, he stated his instructor for riding camels was none other than the grandson of Audi Abu Tai, a member of the Jordanian Desert Patrol. Hmm. Wild shit. The connections. This would not be the only injury Peter O'Toole suffered while making this movie. This Hmm. was an incredibly grueling shoot. Sure. Prepare yourself for how hurt Peter O'Toole got. Oh no. He suffered third degree burns, sprained both ankles, tore ligaments in his hip and thigh, broke his thumb, dislocated his spine, fractured his skull, got bitten by a camel, sprained his neck, tore a groin muscle, got concussed twice, 
and seriously injured his hand during filming after drunkenly punching the window of a caravan. Oh my god. That part was mostly on him, because one other thing is Peter O'Toole is probably the drunkiest drunk that ever drunk in movies. Mm-hmm. At least the drunkiest drunk that also didn't completely self-implode. Wow. But the reason there's a bandage on his left thumb during the first train attack is because he drunkenly punched that window. He lost nearly 28 pounds over the course of filming. When you see him with those bags in his eyes and him with that gauntness, that's very fucking real. The entire shoot was a lot. And at one point, he really thought he was going to lose his mind. Uh, Yeah, that's what it sounds like. He told his wife in a letter, quote, here you have to be a little mad to be sane, unquote. Because the flip side of this is they're on location in the desert. Mm. And I mean in the desert. There is nothing. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's a lot. <laughs> During the filming of the Battle of Aqaba, the real Lawrence accidentally shot his camel and it threw him off, nearly killing him. O'Toole also nearly got killed. During the filming of Aqaba, when, according to different reports, one of three things happened. You can guess which one you think is true. Mm-hmm. One, a gun used to signal action during the first take of Aqaba fired prematurely, and O'Toole was thrown from the camel in front of charging horses. Two, O'Toole was temporarily blinded by pellets from an effects gun, and that's when he lost control of the camel. Or three, Peter O'Toole was simply too drunk to hold on to his camel. I think all three of those are real. (laughs) The answer is yes. (laughs) I don't know for real, but I'm just like, that's the answer that all of those happened. I'm I'm correct. Fortunately for O'Toole, the camel was trained for such situations like that, that they were camels used for filming. Mm -hmm. And the camel immediately stood over O'Toole to prevent him from getting trampled by the horses. That's a good camel. At one point, Peter O'Toole was flown to New York City to meet the executives backing the movie. One looked at him and said, quote, when I look at you, I see six million dollars. Peter O'Toole immediately said, quote, how'd you like a punch up the throat? Unquote. I appreciate him so Mm -hmm. much. Does not give a shit. Hates being meat for studios. He is an actor actor and he is drunk. Mm -hmm. O'Toole admitted that he and Omar Sharif were concerned about falling off camels during one scene, so they got totally blasted and tied themselves onto the camels before shooting. He admitted that for the entire attack on Aqaba, he was so drunk he had no idea where he was or what he was doing. Hmm. And after six months of filming, they gave him a week's rest to go home, especially to recover from some injuries. The second he got out of the hospital, he went on a bender. He got arrested for drunk driving, was jailed, fined 75 pounds, and disqualified for driving for a year. Sam Spiegel reprimanded him, quote, You're not supposed to get up to that kind of caper on a film like this, unquote. (laughs) The man was a disaster. Wow. There is no doubting that. Mm -hmm. However... They pushed him to the fucking brink on this movie. Yeah, that's what it sounds like. This is before the the Tom Cruise, Leo DiCaprio era of, I am going to very specifically take on a project mm-hmm. that pushes me to my physical limit. Because now it's like a thing in Hollywood, and it's, it's initiated by the actor. Mm-hmm. This is not that. No. 
This is, we found a young actor who's really, really good, and David Lean is going to, because he's got such this grandiose vision, he does not give a shit about the safety of him, only that he looks good on camera. Mm-hmm. Like, I, you, one wonders, had he not done this movie, would it have pushed his life in such a radical, drunky direction instead of just being a bit of a lush? I don't know. But, like, this is... This was an intense experience for this dude. Yeah. We have some who could have been betters. Okay. How about Marlon Brando? No. (laughs) Just no. He was David Lean and Sam Spiegel's first choice because Spiegel had produced Brando's Oscar winning turn in On the Waterfront. So there was already connections. Brando allegedly said famously that he didn't want to spend two years of his life riding on a camel, unquote. I mean, fair. Mm. (laughs) That's what it was. (laughs) Now, let's talk about the other first choice. One Albert Finney. Um, maybe. I don't know. Albert Finney's hard to know because, first of all, at that point, he was still unknown. Mm -hmm. His big break didn't come until the next year in Tom Jones. Mm -hmm. And that was a whole big thing. But that also led it into the, he's a much more charming, just a a charming big dude who's sardonic and sarcastic. Mm -hmm. Not Peter O'Toole being wry. (laughs) But Finney was put through extensive screen testing for over four days at 100,000 pounds. That's how much it costs to do the screen test for Finney. (laughs) Mm. And he was on board to do it. But Sam Spiegel demanded a seven-year contract from whoever signed on because Spiegel wanted a star. Hmm. And Finney said, I'm not doing that. The screen tests of Albert Finney for Lawrence of Arabia are the most requested film item in the National Film Archive in Britain. Mm -hmm. Because they still exist, they're preserved there, and people want to see, whoa. (laughs) This is one of those chances where we're like, we actually have that footage. We could see what it would have been like. Mm-hmm. Instead, Peter O'Toole became a movie star. And we're left with what we have. I'm okay with that. Then, who could have been better? Montgomery Clift. Oh, I don't know. Lanky, moody dude. However, Spiegel had worked with him on Suddenly last summer, and he uh, was not very happy with his drinking problems, because at that point, Cliff's alcoholism had completely taken him over. Hmm. O'Toole was like a rabble rouser. Montgomery Clift was descending into dark alcoholism also who could have been better not at the time alec guinness he was of course too old to play the role at this point but he had had a lifelong interest in lawrence he very much wanted the role and he had actually portrayed lawrence in that play ross that we talked about so when sir lawrence olivier turned down the role of prince faisal alec guinness was asked if he would like to do it instead no No, but ah, it's so frustrating. It's so frustrating. Here's the thing. The man loved the story. Mm -hmm. Let's give him a part in the movie. Although, make him Alan B. Like, I don't know. We'll get there. We're we're almost to him. We're not pleased with the casting. We love Alec Guinness. Facts. I get why he was cast. In part because of his relationship with the director. And... Like that whole situation. What was the movie before this? Bridge on the River Kwai. Yeah. Alec Guinness is amazing in that film. We love him. He should not be in this movie. We're, he should not be here. Or he could have been the officers when they finally get to the place. 
but no. Okay, let, let's let's finish up our Who Could Have Been Betters here. Who Could Have Been Better for Lawrence? Anthony Perkins, the no. young star of Psycho, was approached for the role. Also a very good actor. The problem was Psycho became such a huge deal while they were just starting to finally film this movie. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right, so they would have approached him before Psycho got released. And everybody in the production staff were afraid that the film would just be labeled, quote, Psycho of Arabia. Just from a pure marketing standpoint, they couldn't support it. Mm. And finally, in a much earlier iteration of Lawrence's story in 1953, Mm -hmm. who could have been better? The Pilgrim himself, John Wayne. No. (laughs) I'm so annoyed at your impression. So annoyed. Can you imagine? John fucking Wayne playing this effeminate, quiet, filled with to the brim with tension man. Mm-hmm. The ultimate just symbol of American horrible masculinity. Instead, we got the ridiculous laughableness of him playing Genghis Khan, which will forever live as one of the funniest fucking things Hollywood ever did. Horrible. But very funny. Oh my god. Why? Why would you ever? First of all, why would you ever consider an American? Because it's an American production company and we're the worst. But it's such a British story, right? But then, if you're going to consider an American, I can get behind Brando a little bit. Mm -hmm. I can probably support Montgomery Clift. Clift had the look. Clift had the vibe. Sean Wayne... Hollywood's dumb. All right. Now let's get ready to cringe. Oh, oh, oh. Now I get to cringe. Great. Yes. And we're going to go back to back on the cringe here because y'all, y'all. Y'all, there are too many white people cast in this movie. It's not white people. Specifically two. Mm, I don't like it. And we're going to start with Alec Guinness playing Mm. Prince Faisal. Before this, he was in Great Expectations, Oliver Twist, The Lavender Hill Mob, The Detective, To Paris With Love, The Lady Killers, The Bridge on the River Kwai, All at Sea, and Our Man in Havana. After this, he was in The Fall of the Roman Empire, Dr. Zhivago, The Comedians, Cromwell, Scrooge, Murder by Death, Star Wars Episode Four: A New Hope, of course he's Obi-Wan Kenobi, Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy in 1979, and he played that role for many years on television, Lovesick, A Passage to India, and... Kafka. First of all, Alec Guinness should not be playing this role. Mm-mm. Ever. No white person should be playing this role. No white person should be playing any of these roles. And there is a world, like I said, where I would love to see a new version of this with all characters from those backgrounds. Mm-hmm. Be a really cool time to get a new actor in there. Although that leads me, who could you cast as Lawrence now? Uh, the guy? Okay. Who would, you know, honestly? Probably like a Tom Hiddleston. Mm, Hiddleston's too old now, though, I feel like. He's he's only mid-40s. That's fair. Like, I think he's like, yeah, he's early 40s. He's the same age as Chris Evans. Um, So like like a Tom Hiddleston, like very British, good actor, handsome, white as fuck. That's who you cast. Yeah. Someone, someone to that effect. Be interesting. Be interesting. Mm-hmm. Look. We cannot get past the fact of how horrible the casting is for him and for the next actor we have to talk about. I have to separate the acting here. He's pretty good. Mm -hmm. 
He's not the best, but he's also an incidental character to this story. He's not an incidental character to history at fucking all. <laughs> Faisal was very much the political counterpart to what Lawrence did in guerrilla tactics and warfare. Like it's it's almost a Fidel Che relationship okay. where Che is the guy going out into the forest and the jungles, you know, stopping down all the troops. And Fidel's the guy back at home making the deals. Mm -hmm. It's that relationship in history. And they suggest that. The weird part is, and some of this is because they got Alec Guinness. Their who could have been better was Sir Lawrence Olivier. Mm -hmm. But they got an older actor. So instead of it being this interesting counterpart, it's very much almost like an older brother relationship. Okay. Like, that's, that's how Guinness is playing it. And there's not enough of him, I feel like, for it to make as much of an impact as it could have. I really wish they had portrayed the actual history of Faisal and Lawrence being very much counterparts. Very different, but very much two people of the same age and generation working towards the same goal, but from different angles. Mm -hmm. It's a much more interesting story. That being said, Guinness gets some of the, like, real digger lines yeah and that's because i mean some of that's just he's just that good an actor <laughs> but like i i do love again he's not playing it over the top mm -hmm. the the frustrating over the topness is the brown face it's yeah. horrible it's it's incredibly noticeable it's horrible and you can't escape it while watching the film no you can't it it just is what it is and that is just we know it was very common. It doesn't excuse it. It's just very disappointing and very frustrating when we go to watch these movies. And that's a part of it. And <sighs> I know the one thing in his favor is that he's very much still just trying to play this character. He's not trying to overdo it. He's not trying to play some sort of trope. He's just trying to be who this guy is on the page. Mm -hmm. And that's the best credit I can give to somebody put into this situation in 1962. If Alec Guinness were around now, I would probably think he would say, no, I'm not fucking doing this. Kind of like Anthony Hopkins was convinced not to take the fucking role of Mohandas Gandhi. Yeah, it's just, it's not great, people. No. Now, despite all of this, the makeup that they used actually convinced some Jordanians. Mm -hmm. There were several people in Jordan who knew Prince Faisal who mistook Guinness for the actual leader. Mm -hmm. They had to do some double takes. He also stated that he developed his accent by having long conversations with Omar Sharif on the film. Mm -hmm. Guinness was, like many, charmed by Peter O'Toole's talent until he watched Peter O'Toole drink. At one point, the two were invited to dinner at a local dignitary's house while they were filming. Peter O'Toole got drunk, argued with the host, and threw a glass of champagne in his face. Guinness wrote to a friend, quote, O'Toole could have been killed, shot, or strangled, and I'm beginning to think it's a pity he wasn't, unquote. <laughs> as I said, who could have been better? Sir Lawrence Olivier. Remember that statement as we talk about our next actor, Anthony Quinn, playing Auda Abu Tai. Anthony Quinn's a legend. We haven't talked about him before. Okay. And Mexican-American. Not a lot of people know that about him, 
but it is interesting. He he's done a lot of Italian film, which was interesting. But for a long time, I didn't realize he was Mexican American at all. Okay. Before this, he was in The Buccaneer, Union Pacific, Blood and Sand, Larceny Inc., Road to Morocco, The Oxbow Incident, Guadalcanal Diary, Buffalo Bill, Sinbad the Sailor, Black Gold, Tycoon, Viva Zapata, East of Sumatra, Angels of Darkness, Ulysses, The Hunchback of Notre Dame, The Guns of Navarone, Barabbas, and Requiem for a Heavyweight. After this, he was in The Visit, Behold a Pale Horse, Zorba the Greek, Guns for St. Sebastian, The Shoes of the Fisherman, Across 110th Street, The Destructors, Jesus of Nazareth on TV, Stradivari, Jungle Fever, Only the Lonely, Last Action Hero, and A Walk in the Clouds. We missed him in in, uh, Last Action Hero. Nah, he was in there. I'm pretty sure we mentioned him. He might have been just like himself at some point. It's entirely possible. There were so many people floating around that movie. Sure. I had to look him up to be like, what's his face look like again? What's the deal there? Yeah. Yeah. The, the double racist part of this here is that because Anthony Quinn was Mexican-American, he was very often the go-to cast this guy as a random brown dude. Mm-hmm. That was a good chunk of his career. Now, he was also a really, really good actor and has been great in all sorts of movies, not just ones where he was sort of cast in that, that type of role, but also just in regular movies that he's in. Mm-hmm. Like, he's just a fucking good actor. Yes. And, you know, again, it's horrible. He shouldn't be in this movie in this role. Mm-hmm. No. But also, he's really fucking fun in this role. He, he is fun. Part of this, too, the portrayal of Auda knowing history, I think, is the most frustrating. Mm. Everybody else, I feel like, gets a decent telling of their story. Mm-hmm. They get a pretty on point Except for General Allenby, who is a white dude, and I don't care that much if we're going to do that in service Mm -hmm. of Lawrence. But when you're going to make one of our Arab characters a greedy monster when he might have been the most devoted to the cause, Mm -hmm. that sucks. It's a pretty big mark against the movie. And Anthony Quinn is fun, and he's having a lot of fun, but the whole they, they play it too hard on that edge of... He's the raider. He's in it for himself and his his fellow men in his tribe. Mm-hmm. And not enough about, but I'm coming around to this cause. I will tell you what they pay me, and you will tell me if this is a servant's wages. They pay me month by month 100 golden guineas. 150 out of who told thee that? I have long ears. And a long tongue between them. A hundred, a hundred and fifty, what matters? It's a trifle. A trifle, which they take from a great box they have. In Aqaba. In Aqaba? Where else? You trouble me like women. <laughs> Friends, we have been foolish. Aldo will not come to Aqaba. No. For money? No. For Faisal? No. Not to drive away the Turks. He will come because it is his pleasure. Thy mother mated with a scorpion. Again, the history here is enough for you to make this a compelling character. You don't need to boil it back down. And so he's doing a very good job but it's just leaning into the really bad trope that they've decided to put this character into. Mm -hmm. 
And then, of course, he is not an Arab playing an Arab. It's bad. Don't like it. Don't like it. <sighs> Quinn would often arrive in full clothes and makeup, doing his own makeup before he got to set. At one point, Lean mistook him for a local and sent his assistant to tell Anthony Quinn he'd been replaced by a new arrival to set. Mm-hmm. So kudos to the to the makeup and costume department for doing a very good job on accuracy, I guess. Mm-hmm. But also, don't. Just don't. Who could have been better? Sir Lawrence Olivier. I mean, no. They really wanted Lawrence Olivier to be in this fucking movie somewhere, clearly. Clearly, that's what they had going on. <laughs> Will you just take any role? And he's like, no, I don't want to. All right, then we have Jack Hawkins playing General Allenby. We have mentioned him before. He was in a ton of random movies in the 30s through the 50s, but then The Intruder, The Prisoner, Land of the Pharaohs, Gideon of Scotland Yard, Bridge on the River Kwai, Ben-Hur, and Five Finger Exercise. After this, he was in Zulu, Lord Jim, Masquerade, Great Catherine, Oh, What a Lovely War, Waterloo, Nicholas and Alexandra, The Beloved, and Young Winston. What do we think of Jack Hawkins in this movie? I like him. He's like the closest we ever get to a villain. I mean, yeah, I, he, he doesn't stand out a lot, but you can tell he's enjoying what he's doing. <laughs> like, that's very true. I think that's one of the key takeaways from his performance is that he's clearly enjoying this. Like, he's having fun. He's getting to mustache twirl with a role that's far more nuanced than a mustache twirling villain, which I think makes him interesting. Mm -hmm. You know, he was, I mean, he was also fun in Bridge on the River Kwai because he was like the British general leading the effort in and bringing in William Holden's character to like execute the plan. He's the authority figure coming from the outside to dictate the terms. Mm -hmm. And unfortunately, most of the time he's the asshole. But I kind of like that for this movie that. He's he's a villain, but at no point do you question his motives. Mm -hmm. And as they get into the politics, his comment every time, good or bad, is, well, thank God that's not my job. Not my fucking problem. I got my orders. We'll let them drive the Turks out and then move in ourselves. I've told them that that's false, that we've no ambitions in Arabia. Have we? I'm not a politician, thank God. Have we any ambition in Arabia, Dryden? It's, it's, it's really interesting. Like, he tried to soften it. Again, it's weird because Allenby was not nearly as cynical a figure as he is in the film. Mm -hmm. But I appreciate that the, the British perspective in this, it's not the same as the Turks, who are, who are very much like the evil force. Mm -hmm. And part of that is we're not supposed to feel bad about the British in World War I. It's kind of important that they not be the bad guys. But I love how he writes the line between the British very specifically have an interest in this theater too. Maybe I'll do Lawrence a solid here. But yeah, he's he's definitely having fun. And that showed through on set, especially because Peter O'Toole and Hawkins became very close, much to the frustration of director David Lean. You see, Lean wanted Hawkins to keep his distance from O'Toole to try to help with the performance because, like all of the horrible perfectionist jackass directors, he thought that forcing the relationships would cause these issues. Stanley Kubrick much? Oh, yeah. Hawkins, quote, didn't see the point 
and so frequently decided to go hang out and drink with O'Toole between shots. I love this man. Mm -hmm. This included a visit to a Seville restaurant in Spain where Peter O'Toole threatened a waiter only to back down when the waiter produced a knife. Peter O'Toole is a messy bitch. To say the least. (laughs) Dear God, he's a messy bitch. Kind of love him for that, but also dear Lord. (laughs) O'Toole and Hawkins frequently improvised humorous dialogue on set during takes, which would infuriate Lean. Again, a perfectionist. In fact, one time after they got through a solid take and a really good day of work, Hawkins decided to just start doing a little dance. And then David Lean exploded at him, screaming at him in anger. Mm -hmm. David Lean, not a great dude. The prototype for Kubrick to come. Mm -hmm. Jack Hawkins seems like a solid guy. Who could have been better? Come on, Diana. You know who. Peter O'Toole? Sir Lawrence Olivier. Fuck's sake. Also, more interesting choice here. Could have been fun, but also too stunt casty. Cary Grant. I mean, no. Too big a movie star for this role. Yeah, like I'm I'm fine with a stunt cast for that role, but that's too big of a stunt cast. Olivier would probably have been better. Mm, maybe. Well, because Olivier Olivier was a consummate actor. He could do fucking anything. There's a reason that man could play Hamlet at like 50, because he was that good. <laughs> but I think he would have done better than Cary Grant because Cary Grant is Cary Grant on screen. He's not, you know. He, he he only has one lane. <laughs> so I we, we got a very good choice for the supporting role. And finally, we must discuss the one main actor who was cast from a Middle Eastern country in a Middle Eastern role. And that is Omar Sharif playing Sharif Ali. We talked about him in both Funny Girl and Funny Lady when he makes an appearance. This, however, was his first American role. He had done lots of Egyptian film up until this point, but this was the first time when he was in an actual Hollywood movie. And of course, it led to superstardom for him. Mm-hmm. What do we think of Omar Sharif in this movie? Oh, he's great. He's so good next to O'Toole. Oh, very much. Their, their interactions are fabulous. They just have that chemistry. I... You know, it's interesting that they bring up, like, it almost seems like a love affair between these two. Mm -hmm. That chemistry is there, though they're not really playing that level of it. Mm -hmm. But there's just this spark between the two of them. Mm -hmm. And they're also, the characters are so polar opposite. Yeah. But this connection that they have of this ruthless devotion to their principle. Mm Mm-hmm. It just, it it crackles the second they show up and Sharif is just talking to him in the desert. And, you know, Lawrence is going to stand his ground on his principles. And Sharif is like, you don't fucking know anything about how this place works. My Lord Faisal already has an Englishman. Yes. What is your name? My name is for my friends. None of my friends is a murderer. You are angry, English. He was nothing. The well is everything. The Hazimi may not drink at our wells. He knew that. Salam. Hut, hut, hut. He's so good. 
Like, no wonder this movie alone made him a Hollywood star. Oh, sure. Because, wow. (laughs) And also, there's been a lot said. The man was, of course, a beautiful, gorgeous man. I don't think he's ever been hotter than in this movie. Holy shit, he looks good. I mean, he's not a bad looking guy. But damn. On that in that desert garb, riding around on the horses, throwing stuff around. Oh. Woof. Mm-hmm. Ah cha cha. Uh Sharif was already an Egyptian star when he was called to meet with Sam Spiegel in Cairo and then f- flown to Jordan to complete a screen test. Sharif marveled that a Jewish man based out of Hollywood had been able to obtain something that the Egyptian government had never given him a native Egyptian, which mm-hmm. was an exit visa. <laughs> Pretty interesting. During the screen test, Lean wanted to give Ali facial hair to contrast with the clean-shaven Lawrence. They tried a fake beard for Sharif, but it seemed like too much, and then they gave him the mustache, leading to his iconic image in the film. Mm. It, it made him such an icon that for the entirety of his career, he kept facial hair. He had been clean-shaven up until that point. Mm. And originally, he was cast as Tafas, the guide to Prince Faisal. But in his screen test made such a huge impression Mm. that they cast him in this main role. I love that. So, I mean, at least we got something out of it. Ah, the brown face, y'all. It's really bad. I don't like it. Okay, let's talk about our puns. Let's get away from it, maybe a little bit. Okay. We start with Jose Ferrer playing the Turkish Bay. Okay, I saw his name and I was like, Jose Ferrer? Like, from RoboCop? Are we sure? Yes. That was Miguel Ferrer. Okay. Miguel is his son. (laughs) Fair. No, Jose is uh, his father, uh, Puerto Rican legend. He he was very famous for playing Cyrano uh, back in the 40s and 50s. Okay. O'Toole claimed he learned more about acting from just a few days of filming with Jose Ferrer than in all of his years of training. Hmm. And he makes an impact. He has all of, what, five minutes of screen time? And he is one of the most menacing villains you'll see in movies, Hmm. especially in a movie from 1962. (laughs) Like he's more terrifying than some horror movie villains. That's saying something. Mm -hmm. He was not excited about such a small role. He said he'd only take it if they pay $25,000 more than O'Toole and Sharif's salary combined, Hmm. plus a factory made Porsche. And he got it. Ironically, after completing the film, he considered his acting in this to be some of the best in his career. Aww. So, look, man, testament of a great actor is if you can show up for that short a period of time and make that big an impact. Mm-hmm. And he did it. <laughs> mm-hmm. We have Claude Rains playing Mr. Dryden, the political advisor. This is the Invisible Man. Yes. There he is. Nuts to me. Real weird. Uh, such a different character, but... A fun little foil to everybody, to be honest. Mm-hmm. He's he's very fun. Are you going to get out of my way? <laughs> Arthur Kennedy playing Jackson Bentley, the reporter. He was in Peyton Place and Fantastic Voyage. But we have some good who could have been betters here. First off, Kirk Douglas. Originally, Ooh. Bentley was going to be a much bigger role. So when that got cut, Kirk Douglas was like, I'm not playing a bit part. But who else? Who else could we name from the 50s and 60s to play an American role in a British movie? William fucking Holden. I wouldn't have been mad if William Holden showed up. We see him a lot now. As the grumpy, cynical reporter? Yeah. That's yes. Just, that's just him showing up to get his paycheck. 
holy shit, he would have been so good. Mm-hmm. Arthur Kennedy's fine. He doesn't make as, um, as much of an impact, but if you're going to stunt cast, this is the time to do it. Mm-hmm. Anthony Quayle playing Colonel Brighton. He was in The Guns of Navarone, and it takes a thief. Mm-hmm. Who could have been better? Jack Hawkins. When some of the originals dropped out, Jack Hawkins was originally scheduled to be Brighton, but instead he got bumped up to Allenby, so that's how Anthony Quayle got brought in. Mm-hmm. And who could have been better? James Bond himself, David Niven. Hmm, David Niven. I don't know. He would have been a better Allenby. Yes. David Niven's too staunch and stiff upper lip. Also would have been a great Mr. Dryden. Because mm-hmm. I love me some David Niven. <laughs> but not for this sort of grumpy guy who doesn't like what Lawrence is doing on the battlefield. Yeah. Donald Wolfett playing General Murray. I mention him because he was a great British actor of his era who also had to barnstorm the stage because he was so impossible to work with. After his death, people were still criticizing him for how he treated people. (laughs) Michel Ray playing Farage, one of the, the kids that Lawrence meets. He was a child actor who, after the 18-month shoot, decided to move into business and winter sports. He competed in skiing in luge in the 68, 72, and 76 Winter Olympics for Britain. He got into securities and made a fortune, especially when he married his childhood friend, Charlene, daughter of Alfred Heineken of the Heineken Beer Company. By 2002, he was worth an estimated $4.2 billion. Wow. Jack Gwillem playing the club secretary. He was the chief justice in the court in A Man for All Seasons. Okay. Robert Bolt playing an officer with a pipe gazing at Lawrence. This is our writer. He's just there in the movie. Peter Burton playing one of the sheikhs in the Arab Council. He was Major Boothroyd in Dr. No, our Q before Q. Mm-hmm. Charles Gray doing the voice of General Allen B., Jack Hawkins passed away in 1973, and so when they did the restoration, Hawkins could not re-record lines for the portions they were adding in. So they brought in Charles Gray instead. Now, Charles Gray is recognizable to us because he was Henderson in You Only Live Twice, Blofeld in Diamonds Are Forever, the worst Blofeld, and he was the criminologist, a.k.a. the narrator, in Rocky Horror Picture Show. Hmm. Okay. Jack Headley playing a reporter at Lawrence's funeral. He was the character Havelock in For Your Eyes Only. Again, doesn't matter if they were the smallest role in a Bond film, they get mentioned. David Lean playing the motorcyclist by the Suez Canal who yells, Who are you? to Lawrence. That is our director. I love it. Ian McNaughton playing Michael George Hartley at the beginning who puts his fingers on the, uh, the match that Lawrence has and hurts himself. He was the director of most of Monty Python's Flying Circus. Okay. No, Michael George Hartley. <laughs> that scene sets him up alone by calling everybody in that room by their full Christian names. Mm-hmm. You're just like, shit, well, I know exactly who this guy is. George Plimpton playing one of the Bedouins. Plimpton was a modern writer and journalist specializing in immersive journalism, throwing himself into different social roles. He embedded himself as a football player, a baseball player. Pretty sure he did a writing story portraying a boxer. So he'd go and do these jobs and then write about it. And he had a side hustle as appearing as an occasional actor in films. Okay. Norman Rossington playing Corporal Jenkins. He played Norm, the beleaguered road manager of the Fab Four in A Hard Day's Night. Mm -hmm. 
Cyril Shapps playing the bartender in the Officers Club. He was the character Beckman in The Spy Who Loved Me. And Roy Stevens as a truck driver. He was the assistant director of this movie. And that is your R Palms. Now we go into awards. Awards. This movie was nominated for 10 Academy Awards. Okay, this is a big movie. That does not surprise me. It should have been nominated for 11. Oh, okay. But the production forgot to submit costume designer Phyllis Dalton's name for consideration for the movie. I would be so pissed. Especially when the costumes are this big a fucking deal? Yeah. That's bad. Oh, yeah. All right. It was nominated for Best Cinematography, which it won. I mean. Yeah, deserved. How would you not? Yeah, I mean, no. No, no, no. It had to. It was nominated for Best Art Set Decoration. Color. It won. Again, we talk- they built an entire city for the Akaba scene. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah. Best Sound. It won. Best Editing. It won. Best, quote, substantially original score, which was a thing back then. Mm, okay. It won. Maurice Charest's score is so fucking iconic. That score is literally everything that John Williams did for like the first, I don't know, 10 years of his career, it definitely informed it. Yeah. Best Adapted Screenplay, it lost. Michael Wilson was later granted his nomination in 1995 after the WGA restored his credit since he was blacklisted at the time of filming. I don't have a problem with this because as we've said, the screenplay is not bad, but the weakest part of the movie. Mm -hmm. Best Supporting Actor for Omar Sharif. He lost to Ed Begley Sr., in Sweet Bird of Youth. Okay. It was nominated for Best Actor for Peter O'Toole, who lost to Gregory Peck for To Kill a Mockingbird. Now, there's a horse race. And I've never seen To Kill a Mockingbird, the movie. What? I've read the book, never seen the film. What? (laughs) You gave me shit for not seeing this movie. Come on, David. Yes, well, this one is a stellar piece of historical cinema, and the other is To Kill a Mockingbird. Uh, Whatever, I'm gonna see it one of these days. Probably for this show. It won Best Director for David Lean. Okay, yeah. And it won Best Picture. Of course it did. Look, man, how do you argue with a near four-hour movie that doesn't drag, is highly entertaining, and is also incredibly beautiful? Mm -hmm. I can't, you, you can't deny it. No. But by that tally, it won one, two, three, four, five, seven of ten Oscars. That's not bad. And that leads us into trivia. And oh boy, there's a whole lot more trivia. Oh, fuck. Costume designer Phyllis Dalton intentionally made Peter O'Toole's outfit too small and ill-fitting to signify his discomfort with his uniform. Mm. She also subtly showed Lawrence's falling grip on reality by making his robes thinner and thinner throughout the film sequences, until by the end, they are almost completely translucent. Mm. Subtle. But if you're watching for it, ooh, it's good. (laughs) Very cool. On set, the production used white plastic cups for drinking water until the wind started to blow them into the desert. After having several shots ruined by white cups blowing around in the background, Lean had them banned and replaced with ceramic mugs. Again, this movie cost nearly $300 million in today's money because of shit like that. Mm. 
Producer Sam Spiegel wanted David Lean to consider cost-saving measures like shooting in Southern California or potentially Israel, which they had more friendly relationships with. Lean, however, was bound and determined to shoot in the Middle East, where the story took place. Mm -hmm. One of the problems, though, was that Spiegel could potentially be banned from entering Jordan because he was Jewish. (laughs) This is a factor of relations at the time. Oh, yeah. The British advisor for the film, Anthony Nutting, got around the issue by having Spiegel's visa listing his religion as Anglican. When Spiegel protested this, Nutting said, Sam, just shut up. Here's your bloody visa. It's like, dude, do you want to get in the country? Mm -hmm. Then shut the fuck up. Both Jack Hawkins and Alec Guinness shaved their heads for their roles. Really? I assume Guinness to be able to fit the robes and the wigs, Mm -hmm. but Hawkins... Hawkins, in Bridge on the River Kwai, he has a full head of hair. Okay. In this, he's balding. So they shaved it so that they could easily make it look more realistic. It's very interesting. He was not a balding man. I don't know. On his first scouting trip in Jordan, Sir David Lean discovered remains of the trains and tracks the actual T.E. Lawrence had destroyed during the Arab Revolution. After 40 years of exposure to desert air, they had not even rusted. When the movie came out, rumors spread that some managers would turn down their air conditioning or turn up the heat a half hour before the intermission, both for the atmosphere and to sell more concessions. Okay. There was also a joke that a moviegoer went to the ticket window requesting two tickets on the shady side of the theater. Shady side of the theater. There was a long-standing urban myth that emerged from this movie that Lawrence, at one point in his life, switched his watch from his left to his right wrist. This is actually because one of the reels in the master film was flipped, with left and right being reversed on screen for about 10 minutes. However, since there was no writing on screen, it wasn't noticeable when you saw it. People just thought, oh, well, okay, there's just something going on this way now. It wasn't fixed until Lean saw the error during the restoration, and they finally flipped it back. Now, Maurice Charest was hired for the dramatic score, but they brought two other composers to write additional music. One was Aram Kakaturian of the very famous composition Saber Dance, who was hired to compose the Middle Eastern music. And they were going to hire Benjamin Britten, Mm -hmm. the incredibly legendary British operatic dude for the British imperial music. However, those two weren't fully able to commit to the film because, I don't know, they were world-famous classical music composers. (laughs) So, Sam Spiegel, an American, brought none other than Richard Rogers to fill more music in. What? (laughs) I was absurd. So then, Spiegel and Lean heard all the compositions and were completely disappointed. And then... They listened to Jare's score, only to discover it was one of the greatest scores ever written in cinema. Hmm. So they then told Jare, you have six weeks to finish this. And Jare did it. Hollywood. While filming in Jordan, all water had to be trucked in from the nearest well, which was about 150 miles away from set. Holy shit. The area had not been inhabited since monks abandoned a monastery in the 7th century A.D. The temperatures got so high that thermometers couldn't register the heat, and the thermometers had to be cooled down to be kept effective, because we had to film in the desert. Of course we did. After each desert location rehearsal and take, 
there were 300 Bedouins employed with sandals covered in wool to sweep the sands with palm fronds to hide any extra footprints in the sands just so they could keep the shots pristine. It's awesome. I mean, it's just one of those things where like, yes, they could have done so much of this in a studio, but we wouldn't have gotten some of the beautiful shots and cinematography that we got because they were on location. Again, no one will ever make another movie like this. Not likely, no. That's, I think, the key to this movie and why it's so lasting. Mm-hmm. Because there's all sorts of faults you can throw at it. No one's ever going to make a movie that's this gigantic again. Because mm-hmm. why would they? Since tradition forbade Bedouin women from being photographed, Dalton instead used Christian extras to dress in the robes on camera. When actor Henry Oscar, who played the Bedouin scholar throughout the film, recited from the Quran, an imam was present at all times to make sure it was not misquoted, since the actor was not a native Arabic speaker. Hmm. So again, a level of respect for the culture, while Hmm. also really bad having the white people play non-white characters. While filming in the desert, the production used a small city of tents and trailers complete with air conditioning and refrigerators to keep everybody comfortable. The company started at 75 and eventually grew to 400 people, mostly Jordanians. The lead actors had personal servants for any need. A master chef flew from London to set up the kitchen. Saturdays, movies were shown outdoors and the cast and crew flew to the nearest large city for a few days of recreation. During one of those breaks, Omar Sharif and Peter O'Toole separately enjoyed soaking in a cold bath, something they could not do on location. Mm. That's one of those, I don't ever really want to take a cold bath unless I've had to be out in the desert for a month. Then I might enjoy it. Yeah. In order to move sets to Spain, props manager Eddie Fowl used a large tramp steamer, including bringing in a hundred stuffed camels. Stuffed camels? And I mean taxidermy stuffed camels. Mm. The skins were bought from a slaughterhouse in Jordan, and he had them stuffed just in case they needed them for battle scenes. And because this movie is this movie, they were, of course, needed for battle scenes. Okay. I mean, some of that's just good props management. But from Seville in Spain, they had to move 350 miles southeast to the port city of Almira, which is the closest landscape you can find to a desert in Europe. Mm -hmm. So they got a special train to carry the entire company overnight from Seville to the location with another train carrying all of the trailers used from the Jordanian shoot. Then a 48-truck convoy drove down bringing props, costumes, and all the technical equipment to Almeria. Wow. Wadi Rum in Jordan, where some of the scenes take place, is so bleak and barren, it is often used as a background for sci-fi movies, especially ones set on Mars. Mm -hmm. When the sandstorms hit, Peter O'Toole and Omar Sharif found the best place to hide was under the makeup trailer. Hmm. Second unit director Andre de Toth had a really wild idea for a shot where bags of blood would be machine gunned and sprayed on screen. (laughs) Second unit cinematographer Nicholas Rogue, who himself became a fairly famous director, suggested the idea to Lean, and Lean found it disgusting. DeToth subsequently left the project. Hmm. My dude, read the room. Like, cool shot. Undeniably interesting shot. Not for this movie. While shooting Peter O'Toole and I.S. Jahar riding on the single camera back out of the desert, Jahar is the, the guy who gets lost in the desert that Lawrence brings out. 
Lean saw that the actors were having some trouble staying on the camel. Upon closer inspection, they found that on the camel, under the saddle, was a large block of hashish, and both Peter O'Toole and Johar were stoned to oblivion. Shooting was abandoned for the day. Jeez. <laughs> the messiest bitch! Oh, yeah. <laughs> I, wow. Wow. The final shooting location was in Morocco for the picture of the massacre of the Turkish Brigade. An army of 800 Arabs on camels and horses and 1,200 Turkish soldiers on carts and mules were hired for the sequence. Again, 2,000 extras Mm -hmm. for this one scene. However, Lean was really smart in how he filmed it. He started with long shots of large numbers of actors and extras and then narrowed his way down to the medium and close-up shots that needed fewer actors. That allowed him to release the less-needed actors over time Mm -hmm. so that the extras who weren't typically involved in filming would still have their energy early on. Pretty smart move. Yeah. When production started to end in Jordan, Omar Sharif and Peter O'Toole wanted to prepare for going back to regular life. At one point, they got a magazine shipped to the compound that talked about the brand new dance craze, the twist. So they flew in a teacher from Paris to teach them about the dance, and they learned the twist in evenings after filming. However, the production ran so long that by the time they finally made it to England, the twist was no longer in fashion. (laughs) Peter O'Toole was notorious for messing up his lines by breaking into fits of laughter And this was a problem for him his entire career. However, became particularly noticeable in the scene where Lawrence meets Faisal. Because O'Toole was incredibly intimidated appearing opposite the legend and consummate professional Sir Alec Guinness. Mm -hmm. O'Toole would open up the tent, make his entrance ready to go, and then just burst into laughter and ruin the shot. Guinness got more and more frustrated in his very silent British way. And Lean was getting exasperated because they were losing camera footage. So Lean went to O'Toole and said, take a walk, compose yourself, and do not come back in until you are ready to go. Mm -hmm. And O'Toole was mortified. (laughs) Like he was like, he was chastising himself. He was just like completely, what am I doing? This is terrible. I've got to get through this. Mm -hmm. So he returned with an absolute resolve to be 100% professional. And everyone on set expected him to just burst out again. The second he entered the tent, he approached Alec, got his first line out with a completely straight face, and the tension was so high that Alec Guinness burst out laughing. That's awesome. <laughs> uh, God, what a, what a fucking movie. The chief military advisor for the film got sunstroke and had a mental breakdown, wandering from his tent in the middle of the night and shooting at anything moving across the landscape with live ammunition. He had to be carted away from set. It's just ridiculous. We'll never make another movie like this. No. The railroad attack required absolute precision because they could only film the sequence one time. They got Mm. one shot at it. Mm. They laid two full miles of railroad track. And after testing, they determined it would take 10 pounds of gun cotton to cut the rails and another 10 to send the cars creating off track. Mm. They then laid steel plates under the sand to control the trains moving across the desert so that the shot would look good. The engineer pushed the locomotive to full throttle and then jumped off the train before the tracks exploded. Just too much. (laughs) Mm -hmm. The night before the LA premiere, Peter O'Toole and Omar Sharif attended a performance by the controversial comedian Lenny Bruce. 
They had a few drinks and went home with Bruce, who proceeded to shoot heroin. The police, who had been watching Bruce and wanted to bust him on literally anything, broke in and arrested all three on drug charges. Sharif called producer Sam Spiegel to get them out, and Spiegel got the actors released. But Peter O'Toole refused to leave, unless Lenny Bruce would also be released. Hmm. Spiegel and his lawyers finally had to get the drug charges dropped for Lenny Bruce as well to get them all out. Really? Which, good on you, Peter O'Toole. Mm-hmm. Lenny Bruce is a complicated figure, but also he had a lot of problems. Yeah. So. For Lawrence's death scene, Peter O'Toole sat on a bicycle strapped to a trailer pulled behind a camera car to get mm-hmm. the effect of him rushing through the wind on the motorcycle. During filming, the bar connecting the trailer to the camera truck snapped, and the only thing preventing O'Toole from going out of control into the road was a single, flimsy piece of rope. The trailer stopped, and the crew sighed in relief seeing O'Toole in one piece, not having been run over. Per Peter O'Toole, quote, I think it was only Lawrence up there teasing. Wow. And finally, Peter O'Toole, in his life, had one son, who he named Lorcan. Lorcan is Gaelic for Lawrence. And that leads us to ratings. Dear Lord. What a fucking movie. What a fucking epic story. Holy fuck. For every film, we have a specific rating system. Oh, God, yeah. For this one, I mean, are we going to go with his ropes? Does that make the most sense here? Or is it the sand dunes? I think dunes. Ah, the dunes. The dunes of... Of Jordan and the Arab countries. This is my movie because I have seen it before. Mm-hmm. I keep going with my gut to a four and a half. Mm-hmm. You have to take this movie not as a, a history film, mm-hmm. but instead as the tragic story of a man blinded by power. Sure. And what a hell of a story. What a beautiful movie. What an iconic movie. What a hugely influential movie. Mm-hmm. Like it's, Everything from my childhood, from formative years of watching movies, it all drew from this. Every bit of it. I feel like I should knock it down more for the brown face, to be perfectly honest. Mm -hmm. But then everybody's so undeniably at the top of their game, other than the writing. And that's what gets me the half point down, Mm -hmm. is that the script is not quite as fine-tuned as it could be. And in ignoring some of the history, it misses some opportunities to make some characters a little bit more Mm three-dimensional. But the overall story is just so good, and it's so perfectly executed that I I can't deny it. There's a reason it's considered a masterpiece and a classic. Mm -hmm. It's not perfect for me, but it still is way up there in the pantheon. And it's... It is long, but it is a must-see for anybody who loves movies. Mm -hmm. So, four and a half dunes for me. It's a four for me. I'm not hitting it down a half a point just for the brown face. That is fair. Because it makes me mad. Yeah. Um, And it should. It absolutely should. It's bad. It's really bad. And then the other half is just because of the script. It's lacking. The story's interesting the problem is it's trying to act like it's fact but it's not so we need a different script and then you do need to cut some of this film it's beautiful and this man goes on a very interesting journey which is what makes watching it compelling and interesting but 
I, other than the beautiful sweeping uh, scenes of the landscape, I'm really having trouble like pointing to one bit of the film and like, that's the moment, that's the, the, the bit, uh, that's, that's what makes all this worth it. It's really, it's really hard for me to point to that. And that's because the script is lacking. Mm. Mm-hmm. But yeah, it's still four. It's a four. <laughs> I'm a little reluctant about it, but it is a four. You gotta see it. It's one of those. It's just like you, you have to watch it. You can't be as invested in films and not watch this. Especially for people who have seen a lot of modern blockbuster movies and don't realize how much all of those guys are drawing from this. Sure. It's really cool having that perspective mm-hmm. to watch it and go, "Holy shit! Wait." <laughs> Wait a minute. <laughs> and it's not bad. It's not like they're like copy and pasting things. It's just, oh, you see the through line mm-hmm. for so many people in movies from this one moment. Yeah. Okay. We did one really long movie. Okay. Great. Now we have to do a slightly less but still pretty long movie. Okay. But this time, it's more fun. Okay. It's a prison break. Oh, I do like a prison break. And it's a prison break from a Nazi POW camp. I feel like we already watched that. Not exactly. Because this time, we're not doing a mystery. We're doing a straight up heist prison break with 1963's The Great Escape. Ooh, I do love a heist. Ooh, we are into World War II. We've got heists. We've got fun. And Diana, we have James Garner. (gasps) Right? He's not a cowboy in this, but he okay. is charming as hell. That's James Garner. I watched this movie at one point. I just remember watching this going, damn, what a fun movie. Okay. What a fun movie. And by all accounts, not too bad with the history. All right. Well, until next time. Have a good movie. Thanks for listening. Be sure to review and rate us on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to your podcast. For questions, comments, and recommendations, you can email us at macintoshandmod at gmail.com or find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook.